You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Okay. All right. Whatever. Everybody good? Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Um. I guess we'll we'll go because I don't, I don't I think we can figure this one this plan out as we go. <laughs> this one should be pretty simple. Hey, you, anybody want to start with the LSU VCU game? Thank you once again to the mud bugs for playing us in i'm your host poser and this is the sneaky good podcast not very sneaky good this week <laughs> we're actually good because this is the week after we beat bama and with woo-hoo! me as always yeah woohoo! and there was much rejoicing yay <laughs> not a not a whole lot of monty python fans there um they're too young kinda, yeah, I, I, I teed up that Monty Python joke, but my producer Chris gets the Monty Python references. Because I'm old like you. That's right. And older will not, than you, older. I believe. Yeah. I think it's pretty close. I, I think we're you know right on the line. And to tell us, okay, boomer. <laughs> Even though Seth, we're not. Yeah. It's Seth. How's it going? <laughs> I'm good. That was a that was a very quick. Even though we're not, and that's exactly, <laughs> oh, what, dude, a, that's exactly what a boomer would say. Okay, look, we hated boomer. We hated boomers long before you got here. All that's right? right. Don't be don't be horning in on our hating boomer action. All right, that's our world. All right, we, we have long experience with hating boomers. You you're young to this. Yeah, it's it's still new to me. I'm still learning the ropes. <laughs> exactly. You're still learning the ropes. <laughs> we gotta show you like the secret compartment in the back, you know. We can show you proper disdain. Yeah, ex- yeah, like ours proper is more disdain. of a withering the withering glances. And the, <laughs> the rolling <sighs> of the eyes. Yes. <laughs> and even younger and more hating of boomers. <laughs> is jake how's it going yeah i, th- I think i'm in pro- i'm like i'm like the prime age you know kind of range for saying okay boomer <laughs> yeah because that's yeah because i'm not even sure you're at, you're at millennial age you might be no i'm not i'm a whatever a zoomer yes <laughs> Zoomer. oh uh, see i like zoomer just because apparently it pisses off boomers so. <laughs> Because boomers want to be the only oomers out there, is yeah, that they, the thing? The only oomer, yeah. Like it's sort of like how millennials didn't want to be Gen Y, and who could blame them? And you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm Gen Z. That's that's fine. Okay, yeah, that's Which, uh, yeah. I'll take Gen Z. The Z seems fine. Yeah, well, you know, hey, look, I like Channel Z. It was a good B fifty two song. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, Z was a good uh, French cycling team with Greg Lamont. Oh yeah, that's true. That we have all sorts of Z references from the eighties. 
ZZ Top. There you They're go. More boomer. Yeah, but still, some good stuff. Like Lagrange, until they got sued for it because that's a Johnny Hooker song. <laughs> no one knows what I'm talking about. You know, it's the ha 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 song. Guys. No, no, that's why you lost me. Yeah, just everybody lays out on me when I mention John Lee Hooker. Sorry for, you know, mentioning someone who was, you know, born before the World War II. Did you say that ZZ Top was from LaGrange? They did the song LaGrange. Oh, okay. But they got sued for it because it was actually a John Lee Hooker song. Apparently they did not give the proper attributions to it. And and by proper, they mean none. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) And John Lee Hooker found out about it when watching TV one day and saw a car commercial with his song playing in the background. <laughs> and it said, hey, I didn't get a check for that. <laughs> I want to wait, find out. Minute. Wait, that was a top 10 single or top 40 or whatever. But this is the kind of service we have in the Sneaky Good podcast. We talk a little bit of music history as we delay talking about really <laughs> the biggest win in LSU history. Okay, not the biggest win in LSU history, but close to it. It was it, it was the best. The best win? Okay, like, what? Like it's not winning a national or SEC championship, but like beating this team, the big, the best dynasty in college football history, on their own field after what like a thirty-something game win streak. Like I, th- I think what it took to win this game like makes it like the best. Like it was the biggest kind of like accomplishment, sort of. Hey. LSU once did beat Alabama after they had a 30-year win streak against LSU in Tiger Stadium. So we can actually compare this directly to that win. Uh, But, yeah, this was – I don't care where you actually rank it. I mean, that's something that takes time and, you know, when you're not as excited. But let's at least say this was one one of the biggest wins for the LSU program, and it was a whole hell of a lot of fun. And at what point did you actually think LSU was going to win this game? <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I think we we all thought during the week that they were going to do it. Like, we all predicted that they were going to do it, and I think we all believed it, too. It wasn't just an, an LSU bias. We all truly believed they were going to do it. Uh, so it felt like the first completion to Chase, in fact, you can even go back, like, you know, the first run because this is what me and Jake said last week was if they could just you you would kind of know pretty early whether this was going to be another one of those games where we could get anything done against Alabama or if we could deal with the interior pressure like right away then LSU was going to score because this is what they do they just score all the time now and then f- the first two plays the first run and then the first pass it was like oh we like, can do this. This is this is not like any other game that we played against Alabama in the past eight years. Like they can play with them, and they played with them. Jake, um, for like completely without a shadow of a doubt in my mind, when they went up, when they got the the first touchdown in the fourth first in the fourth quarter. Um, pardon me. When they went up, I think 13-9-27, I think it was. Yeah, yeah I think so. That's when, because I mean, like when they got up big in the first half, I never felt kind of like it's unconfident. Like once they scored right away, it was like, okay, they're gonna they're gonna be able to do this like all game long. 
And I felt that way throughout, like, the first half. And then, obviously, when they got up by, like, 20 at the end of the first half, it was like, oh, wow, holy crap. You know, like, this is this is going to happen. But there was still, you know, I mean, you knew Alabama was going to come back because Alabama always comes back. Alabama, with the exception of, like, Clemson, now in the national championship game, Alabama just never gets blown out. It just doesn't happen. So you knew they were going to come back. And then it got really, I mean, when they, when LSU turned the ball over and then when Burrow missed those two Passes he always hits to chase late in that third quarter, and they had to punt, and Bama got within a score. That's when it's it felt like oh, oh dear, like this is gonna this is gonna go wrong. But then once they just drove down the field and got that touchdown, I think that's when I knew. Even when you know Bama came back and scored um, the touchdown again in the fourth quarter, make it 39-34. I mean, they pop off a thirty-yard completion to chase on the first play, and it's like you just. There was a feeling that you just knew they were going to score. They they had answered the bell all day long. And even, I mean, and even, you also just kind of thought if they could just run the clock down. I mean, once they got inside the 10-yard line or whatever, if they could have, you know, taken kind of three plays and probably run the clock down enough. But obviously they got the touchdown. So, yeah, I would say when they scored the touchdown to go up 39-27, I think, when they were able to answer, when Bama got it to one score, that's when I, I think I knew they had it. I'm kind of with Seth on the idea that I got really confident early. Yeah. Actually, I got really nervous early when Alabama ripped off a, two huge plays on their first drive. And Damian Harris, I think, had like a 30-yard rush. And I'm looking around saying, this does not look good. And then something happened that almost never happens in an Alabama-LSU game. Alabama made an unforced error. And Tua fumbled the ball with nobody touching him. That had nothing to do with his ankle. That had nothing to do with his injury. He just – there was really no pressure on him. He just flat dropped the ball. And it just felt like, oh, we're going to get breaks in this game. And it kind of changed the attitude. But you're like, oh, well, we have really bad field position. And that's where I think Seth's thing comes in. Immediately, LSU got a first down and drove down the field. It did feel different right off the bat. But the moment I was just like, LSU was going to win this game – is when Nick Saban went for it with 30 seconds left in the first half. Tua throws an interception, and LSU turns it into a touchdown in one play. And all of a sudden, what was a six-point game three minutes ago was a 20-point halftime lead. It happened so quickly. The game went from kind of a tight white knuckle, this is going to be a back-and-forth haymaker kind of football game, to LSU was up big, and they just have to hang on. And while I'm with Jake and you know Bama's going to come back and you knew it was going to get nervous, I never got too paranoid with it because I always felt LSU was good enough to answer the bell. Yeah, because like even, you know, Jake talking about those two throws in the third quarter, you know, the third quarter, they didn't do anything in the third quarter, but they weren't dominated. He missed, I think it's the first one is Jefferson where he gets out of the pocket and then just overthrows him by a bit uh, when Jefferson's coming across the field. You know, he's there. And then the one that was that, that he always hits is just chase on the corner route, and he just misses him. But it's not like they were just, oh, my God, no one's open anymore. There's pressure in his face. We can't run the ball. It was just kind of a weird mix of, okay, well, we had a couple drives that didn't work, but they were always going to figure it out because – you know, Burrow's not going to overthrow three guys in a row. And 
you know, felt like kind of like the Texas game, kind of like the Florida game again. And maybe these are the kind of type of games that they're going to, you know, if they're going to keep winning these big games, these are the type of games they're going to play where they just, they just don't get stopped. Yeah. I, late I in the game. Like they just, they're, they're too good. They're too good. I, I think what you're talking about right there is LSU wasn't scoring, but they weren't going three and out on any of those drives. Those third quarter drives, which were frustrating, went fumble, punt, punt. And the first one, LSU was driving. And it looked they got into Bama field position. They were at inside. I think they're about the Bama 40-yard line. And Burrow just fumbles the football. It might have been an interception. It doesn't really matter. It's kind of an academic. But you kind of felt, even though LSU turned it over, you felt good because LSU drove down the field. And the only thing that was bad about it is you missed an early chance to blow Bama out early in the second half and turn it into a curb stomping. And that was a real missed opportunity. And the next drive, that's the fourth down where Elair might have gotten the first down. It was a pretty close call. He reached he out. I, I mean, I think he got it, but it wasn't so egregious that you're like, oh, the ref screwed you. It was more like, wow, that's – that's a call I think we would have liked. And up by 20 points midway through the third quarter, I think you punt the ball. I, I know a lot of people on Twitter really wanted LSU to go for it. But if you can't punt up 20, that's the one time you actually can justify playing conservative. And the next drive, even though Burrow threw those two incompletions in a row, they still drove the ball like 25 yards. They, they got to the midfield. So it wasn't like it was a totally wasted drive. It was just a drive that stalled out, unfortunately. And the third quarter also has the – I don't remember exactly the sequence of events right now, but it has a short yardage situation where – was there a penalty where they got the snap off, but there might have been a penalty, and they threw a slant to chase, and they got the conversion? It's the same one after Clyde edwards Lair almost got the first down. It was fourth and one. They were running down. The, they ran out there, and Burrow snapped it. If we would have had the referees of the Penn State-Minnesota game, that snap would have counted. Oh, right. He, he let the clock ran out. Right, exactly. Yeah, it was a so like, game. But if you remember— like, no one knows that on the field, and they get the slant off, and yeah. they, get a, they get a first down. So, again, it's, not, it's all just unforced errors. Bama didn't do anything to necessarily stop it. It would just— I mean, it was not a great delay game because I feel like they came off a timeout or yeah, it was, I, time. don't think, I don't think they were going for it. They didn't get into their set till like Burrow was just standing over, like waiting, and then lo- he looks back to the sideline, and then he looks and doesn't like make any signals, and then finally like gets under with like five seconds left on the play clock, and it, it honestly looked like they were playing for maybe we can just get a snap off, and the referees will just give us one. Like, they could just, like, snap it late and, like, maybe they'd, like... Because, like, they never looked like they were running a play. They looked like they were trying to, like, draw them off sides in the extremely NFL, lazily try to draw them off sides kind of way. They finally snapped it, and it's it, like it never looked like they were going for it until he finally snapped it. And at which point, they already did have been delayed. Like, it, it never really looked like they were going for it. Like, that's why, like, it didn't... That's why the delay, like, it bothered me that they punted it, and it especially bothered me when Najee Harris promptly ran for 35 yards, and they got right to where else he punted it from. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it didn't bother me. Like, the delay game, it did, to me, never felt like a missed opportunity because it didn't look like they were actually trying to go for it. It looked like they were intending to punt it, and uh, obviously they did. 
But no, like I didn't feel like I w- it didn't feel like they were going to like lose or whatever because they were being stopped. It just felt like they punted on fourth and one when they probably could have got it and gone down and scored and gone up by you know maybe either twenty three or by potentially twenty seven, which would have been game over. And then Bama pulls off a touchdown drive and Najee Harris is making them miss tackles on every run. And then Burrow misses those two throws and it's like eh. And then they score again, and it's kind of the same. And, you know, two is making just big-time crazy throws. He gets one ridiculous back shoulder throw for like 40 yards to Devontae Smith. And so it was just kind of like we had a chance to potentially put it away, and we punted to him, and then it backfired, and we missed on stuff we normally hit on, and Bama scored. And those two drives look like what kind of normally Bama LSU drives sort of looked like, where it's – Alabama guys, running backs are breaking tackles and popping off big runs, and the defense is starting to crack a bit. And I, I think honestly, if, if LSU, I think if LSU hadn't scored, like I really think that defense was just on the verge of cracking. And not because they weren't, not because they even played badly. I thought they actually played pretty well on defense in the second half. But Alabama was just making ridiculous play after ridiculous play. Like even some of the third and longs which were super frustrating. The two a throw to rugs on the third and 19 is a crazy throw. He basically throws him open to get the first down. There was one to Smith where Stingley almost breaks it up and Smith still catches. I mean, they made, Bama made so many crazy plays on, you know, in that third quarter, in the, in the entire second half. That it was yeah, just really, one of those this- things. It was just one of those things where it's like, they're not missing. And with that kind of offense, because you know they're going to score because they're so good. And it just felt like, LSU couldn't afford to miss. It, it felt like LSU couldn't afford to blink once. And if they did, that Bama would come back. And maybe if they had blinked one more time, they would have. But, you know, obviously they didn't when they really needed that touchdown. Yeah, because people say, like they talk about, I saw on Twitter, I was talking with someone and he said, uh, LSU really regrets not going forward on fourth and one. It's like they don't really regret that. What they regret is giving up a 95-play drive right after it. After... The four drives before LSU punted for Alabama went three plays for zero yards, one play for zero yard interception. Then they kneeled out the half and then three plays for seven, seven yards. So they went three and out. So we're talking two, three and outs and an interception for a grand total of seven yards in seven plays with a turnover. I mean, Alabama's offense was going nowhere. And then from that point on, Alabama – 10 plays, 95 yards, touchdown. Nine plays, 78 yards, touchdown. 14 plays, 75 yards, touchdown. And then, even though there was only a minute 30 left in the game, one play, 85 yards for a touchdown. So they put together three straight drives of 75 yards plus, and they were all, they were nine plays, 10 plays, and 14 plays. That came out of nowhere for the rest of Alabama's game. They, they were not putting together long, sustained drives like that and then suddenly did. And that's just one of those things that happens. I think it's partially because at, uh, Nick Saban realized that Najee Harris is really good, and I'd like to thank him for totally forgetting about him in the second quarter of the football game. Yeah, I mean, they they were, I mean, they were out of sorts in the first half. It looked like, in the first half, it really, I mean, I think that was the, the key for to me for the entire game was when LSU was on offense, it felt they were always scheming people open. 
They were always finding holes in Bama's defense. They were getting whatever they wanted sort of within their own offense. And when Bama made kind of plays and had theirs on offense, it was just just crazy plays. Like just their litany of five-star players on offense just making ridiculous plays. It never felt like, with the exception of the one, the one where they simulated the snap count and caught LSU and Stingley looking over the sideline, that was the only one. Beside that, it was it just they had they they needed big plays to and they made them. I mean that's you know credit to them, but I think that was the key was you know the first half it really felt like Aranda kind of got Sark sort of off his game. They ran some when kind of some weird third and short plays where it was really just like hand the ball off to Najee Harris and let him give you the first down. And so I think that you know, they made some adjustments in the second half. For the most part, yeah, they just it was really just that Bama has awesome players who make big plays. And I think that's that was, I think, just to me, yeah, the whole key to the game was LSU had the better coaching staff. I think they, they looked better coached throughout the entire game. Another big factor is that LSU has Joe Burrow. So, Seth, <laughs> uh, did he win the Heisman there? I mean, yeah. You tell me, guys. <laughs> yeah. There's I, nothing, and, and especially, like, there's nothing left because – he, they're not going like what's the the worst what's the uh sorry what's the floor against to 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 finish out the regular season against Ole Miss Arkansas and Texas A&M it's like the floor is 800 yards and six touchdowns and two picks <clears throat> excuse me man i'd be disappointed with those numbers <laughs> right that's that's the absolute floor that that could happen and then th- that would still give him the Heisman even if even if Georgia absolutely hammers him for some you know somehow, yeah, he won the Heisman. Though I I will say this because I I noticed that like yeah, and this always happens with the big games. And Joe Burrow is most likely the number one pick, and he's the Heisman Trophy winner. I know this is an podcast, but two is good too. Like for some reason, we just all forgot. Oh, because Burrow. Outplayed him, two two or three for four seventy one. I know a couple of those were you know the, there's like a a very long touchdown on the play that Jake talked about where they fooled the LSU defense. Tua is really good, and Joe Burrow outplayed him, so he gets Heisman. <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Like he beat yeah, one of the guys who's also a top five quarterback in college football, and so he gets the Heisman. I think what's really interesting about this game is it was billed and lived up to the billing of a Heisman showdown between Burrow and Tua. And one guy won and his team won, and that's great. But I think what was interesting, as much as that was the billing, the undercard of the running backs didn't get much billing. And I walked out of that game just for that one game only, thinking Najee Harris is Alabama's best player. And Clyde Edwards Elair is a golden god, and I'm going to change the name of my son to Clyde. <laughs> and he was the difference in the game. As great as Burrow was, Clyde Edwards Elair made play after play and just had a man's game. It, but I do feel like they they almost go hand in hand. And you know the 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 play that we'll 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 never forget was the third and ten where he throws him in the flat, and then he. Gets somehow gets down the sideline, the sideline. You know, so much of that is Burrow not taking a sack on that play, and it's like it's it's like an expected play to a certain degree, 
but it hasn't been an expected play by an LSU quarterback, especially in that game, for a long time. So, you know, they sent pressure. They went empty. No running back protection. Clyde is already lined up as a slot receiver, though, a tight, tight split slot receiver. They sent pressure. And he doesn't panic because he's, I mean, kind of technically, I think Chase is the first route because he's running the in-breaking route. So you want to get that ball out quick. He doesn't panic because there's a defender in front of Chase. He just throws a flat route. It's accurate enough. And then Chase, and then Clyde, I mean, like you said, uh, there was magic on the field. He was, uh, and I was wrong. Oh, I talked about it the whole summer. You know, I was like, ah, oh, you know, what about, uh, you know, uh, the freshman and, and, oh, Chris Curry you know they're 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 gonna have to be players this year because I don't know about Clyde as like a feature SEC back and I was totally wrong. He's the best back. He's the best back. Period. That's all I'm gonna say. He's just amazing, and I was totally wrong. He's so good. His spin move is incredible. He he's got a nice juke move too. Like he doesn't. He just everything is great. He catches out of the backfield. He's amazing. That he's just amazing. Yeah, he's like the perfect back for this offense. And also, like, those two spin moves he made on the two touchdowns, the one where he was hit in the backfield, spins out of it and runs to the top. And then the game-sealing touchdown was just an incredible effort. It, the guy – look, I understand Burrow is our best player. Joe Burrow is the Heisman contender. You know, he still needs to finish it up strong. But Burrow's the man, and he had a great game. But, man, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is the beating heart of that offense. He, he was just Johnny on the spot. And when if you remember earlier, before the season started, we are saying, who's going to be the guy that when he, Burrow is in trouble, who's going to be his security blanket? And we talked about Jefferson, and Jefferson has been partially his security blanket. But it's it's been Clyde. When, when Burrow is in trouble, he gives the ball to Clyde and just says, make something happen. And he does. You know, it, it reminds me of the Clemson-Alabama game last year where it was like, hey, we know that the best player on the field is the quarterback, Lawrence. And we know uh, this weekend the best player on the field was Burrow. But you can't do, you can't put up 46 points, and I don't even remember how much Clemson put up last year, without those, you know, for Clemson's sake, it's without those receivers making unbelievable plays all the time. And in our case, it's, it's with the, you know, with Clyde, Chase and Jefferson just being, you know, like I, I, that skill players were allowed to play against Alabama finally. And again, it goes back to the offensive line not getting absolutely destroyed early on and kind of gaining some confidence. And then, oh, good, we can play against this D line. And it's not, it's not the D lines of the past, but still. It allowed the scheme to work. It allowed the skill position players to work, and they worked, man. Jake, you want to sing the hosannas of uh, Clyde edwards Elaire? or just Joe Burrow? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I just there's, I don't know what you can say about Clyde. I mean, it's it's really, I mean, just he played one of the best games I've I've ever seen from an LC player. I mean, he was just he did everything. And it's it's hard really to there's not enough superlatives really to just describe the way that he played because he was he was incredible. He caught passes, he blocked, he made I mean key blocks, he broke tackles. This was 
I mean, there's well, I mean, when you think about like games that when you think about them, you remember them by the exploits of one player. This was one of those games. Like that's you will remember this game because of the exploits of him. I was thinking the first time I watched the game, I was so kind of invested in the play-by-play. I wasn't thinking about individual performances necessarily. But when I, I did a rewatch, I got a little verklempt, you know, there towards the end for Clyde because I was invested in the individual player performance at that point, right? Because the outcome had already been decided. I didn't have to worry about that anymore. And, man, I was just so happy for that dude after that game. Yeah, he shoved it in everybody's face. I mean, uh, Seth was not alone. We we were also talking about how guys were going to take his carries. It was consensus among the LSU fan base that Clyde Edwards-Elair was the starter for now, and then one of the freshmen was going to take his job. And he has told everybody that they were wrong, and they totally <laughs> underestimated him face. Yep. And it was awesome to see. Like, like he just... He did it with his performance. He didn't cry. He didn't, you know, complain that people were being mean to him. He just went out there and proved everybody wrong, including LSU fans. And people could not be happier for him. Now, speaking of happy, <laughs> do you guys want to see the possibility of an LSU Alabama rematch in the playoffs? How does that make you feel? No. Seeing Bama as number five in the playoff poll. I mean, I think that we could beat them again, unlike in 2011 when, I mean, like, we, yeah, look, they won the game 9-6 in 2011, but Alabama didn't miss two makeable field goals, and it was a lot closer, I think, the first game in 2011 than you wanted it to be for a rematch. I think LSU can do the exact same thing they did again if there's a rematch. My thing is, I just want to see LSU play against teams that they... In, in important games, play against teams that they they don't see regularly. And yeah, exactly. you know, seeing Clemson in a semifinal or a national title would be fantastic. Seeing Ohio State again, it's been 12 years, 13 years. Um, 2007, that was nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, it's been a long time for, since Ohio State, even, you know, Oregon, Utah, whatever. I just don't want to see the, the same teams again. I think that's my biggest thing. Jake? Yeah, I, I concur with Seth. I think we could beat him again. And obviously, I think we'd be better prepared than we were in, you know, as opposed to 2011, where we weren't as prepared as they were. But, yeah, I mean, I don't, you just, it just, it's, it's dumb that we could be, the, the, we, we could both beat each other one time, but their win would be of more importance than ours. Like, it, it'd be, like, unless you already beat Alabama once, but you got to beat them again. And if you like lose to them once, oh, your season's over and like theirs continues. And now it's like, it's like when you beat them, that didn't knock them out. But when they beat you, it knocks you out because they backdoored their way in. Like it'd be, it'd be dumb. Yeah, I'm with you that I'm not afraid of playing them again. I think you're right. We would match up really well. Um, I don't even think LSU played their best game. So it's not a matter of being afraid of them. I just think that. This is just a looking at college football thing. I think it would be bad for college football, mainly because I don't see – unless there's like total chaos. If a whole bunch of people lose, okay, I get it. But it's mainly like how does Bama play their way into the playoff? I mean legitimately. I mean I know that it can happen. But they really – at the end of the year now, their resume will be they beat A&M and Auburn. And that's not 
a great resume. And, you know, they wouldn't have a conference title. They wouldn't have a divisional title. And, yes, they'd have the excuse of, hey, well, the number one team's in our division. I get that. We've used that argument ourselves. But there's a lot of good football being played all over the country. And it's you only have four slots. It's better if every conference feels they have access to the playoff. And if you leave out an undefeated champion, which I don't think would happen, but even if you leave out a really good one-loss champion – for an Alabama team that really hasn't beaten anybody, there's going to be hell to pay. It just isn't good for college football in general. Well, especially if it's if it's Oklahoma. Like Oregon or Utah probably don't have the cachet that Oklahoma does. So if it's like Oklahoma who ends up winning the Big 12 with one loss, which is very possible, and then we have, you know, let's say LSU winning, beating Georgia. So LSU, Clemson, Ohio State. I how you, how can you leave off Oklahoma with that type of like that pro how can you leave off that program compared to Alabama? Yeah, I think in the college football playoff poll, what is it, six or seven Big Twelve teams are ranked? It's something crazy. Like the Big Twelve has depth. They don't have a whole lot of great teams, but it's a very deep conference, and they're just if they if they finish as like an old twelve and one team, that means they would have beaten Baylor twice. So. If Baylor keeps winning, that'll be good for them. But if Oklahoma has a whole bunch of top 25 wins and they have two wins over what could be a Baylor team that went undefeated against everybody but Oklahoma, that's a really good resume plus a conference championship. I don't see how you leave them out of the field. I mean, that would be a better resume than either Oregon or Utah have. No, if if Oklahoma wins out, they should get in. And if Oregon or Utah went out, they should also probably get in over I mean, like look you go by the criteria and it's like quality wins. Well it'd be similar. Oregon and Utah would have one over each other and Alabama's best win would be Auburn. If you go by comparable competition, common opponents, Alabama would have an edge just because they'd have beaten Auburn if it's or if it's say it's Oregon. But then you look at, you know, conference championships doesn't matter and one of those two would have it and Alabama wouldn't. Then you'd be going on eye test, which I, I think I'm pretty sure isn't part of the criteria, but it's Look, they pick the four teams they like, and then they work backwards, and it's yeah, that's exactly what it is, and that's what it is, and it's so it's 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 hard to me. To me, it's just I just, I mean, people keep you know like when people tell me it's like we got to root for this team or this team, I'm like, man, if they want to put Alabama in, they're just gonna put Alabama in. To me, it's because because in my view, there's no real case you can actually make for them the way it's all lined up. Like, you can't make, like, even if, okay, they beat yeah. Auburn, that's one That's one good win over what will possibly be end up being an 8-4 and four Auburn team. The it's case like, for Alabama is we know they're good. Yeah, and so it's like, if you can't really make a case for them, one point, one way or the other, to me, will not, like, flip it. So it's, you can root for Auburn to, I don't know, you know, not be good or, like, lose or whatever, and because you think it will diminish the win. But it's like, man, if they want to put them in, they're going to put them in. The only thing I don't like is total chaos helps Bama. And I don't like rooting against chaos because chaos is great. Exactly. It's college football. So I'm at the end of the day, I'm not going to root against chaos because I want chaos to happen. So I'm rooting for Minnesota to go undefeated and beat Ohio State and one loss Ohio State to get in over Alabama. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, that's another team that I would love to see LSU play is Minnesota in a playoff game. Let's yeah, go man. Minnesota, Baylor, Baylor. Utah. Oh, yeah, what a crazy feeling. Yeah. And I watched a lot of Baylor games. I went to Baylor for law school. And Baylor's not a good team. 
I mean, they're not a great team. They're no, a good team. Obviously, not, they're not. But Baylor games are great fun to watch. I, I mean, it's like LSU last year, every, LSU uh, basketball. Every game comes down to the final whistle. Uh, it's, you know, there's always some crazy play. It's just this, you know, they're going to, you know, and Baylor just always makes the, you know, makes the stop or gets the touchdown catch or whatever they need. Or, you know, the kicker who hasn't hit anything all season hits a 50 yard field goal to force overtime. Baylor is just, if you're not watching Baylor football this year, you're missing out. They're really fun games. They're not high level. It's not like you're watching it going, these guys are all going to play on Sunday. But that's not really the point of college football. It's at the end of the day, did you win? And, you know, they're beating good teams. It's not like they're playing, you know, the sisters of the poor. So I'm all in on Baylor, you know, winning out and making the postseason. I hope they can pull it off. They they get game day this weekend. They get Oklahoma. Let's hope that dream continues. My position on this, as always, is inflexible in that you have to win your conference championship to play for the national title. Obviously, given the past, the committee feels differently, but that's just the way I feel. Yeah, I'm with you. Like they talk about every game matters, but you know, conference titles, you know, apparently don't. don't. Yeah. And, and what it is, is it has encouraged teams to schedule a weaker and weaker out of conference slate because it's more important not to lose. So what you end up having is games that matter more in air quotes, but the games themselves are less interesting because they're not top tier matchups. The cross regional game is not dead, but it's on life support. Mm. And that's because there's no incentive to schedule a really good game cross region right now. But if you said, Hey, you win your conference, you're in the postseason, you're in the playoff all of a sudden, there's an incentive to play a really tough game out of conference because then you're just getting your team ready for conference play. And if they lose, it's no big deal. You can still make the playoff. You can still win a national title by winning your conference. Right. But you'd, you'd have to expand. And I'm okay with this, but you'd have to expand to six, yeah. but preferably eight. eight. And I'm yeah. more than fine with that. Yeah. No, you don't have to expand. Yeah. You can keep it at four because that gives you greater incentive, I think. Because what's going to happen when you have three undefeated conference champions and a couple of one losses? Well, then those one losses really loom large, and I think that makes it for a more fun football season. And, and see, my thing is like an 18 playoff, because I don't view college football as one league. It's actually like... 10 or 11 different leagues, but let's at least narrow it down to the power five. There are five quasi independent leagues. They all crown a champion and then they can go on to a you know, national playoff. So you get an 18 playoff, you know, using the power five teams, give two teams a mulligan, you know, one G five school. I'm okay with that. Eight, eight is fine with me. I, I think after that is when you start worrying about playoff creep. Cause then you start getting, well, this team was eight and four and they have a, you know, they schedule pretty tough. And I don't think anybody really wants that. You don't want Texas A&M or Auburn in the playoff? Not particularly, no. <laughs> no. At, at, at seven and five with a tough schedule. <laughs> so I think even yeah, eight my- teams might might dilute it too much, though. I'm more on board with you know the uh, a six team where your your first and second get a bye in the first round. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that too. My thing with eight is always going to, and I'll, I'll stay with this forever. It's just, I just want to see good teams play each other. Whether it has nothing to do with even LSU, I just want to see good teams play each other. And we don't get that enough during the college football regular season. Uh, so let's get in the playoff. Let's add another round. Let's go with a four game opening round. My view is if you want a playoff, do a play. I mean, do like a FCS kind of playoff. And if you don't, then just I thought we were fine at two. Like I, I, I just uh, to me eight is like if we're getting we're allowing every conference champion in. Well, look, there's going to be some years where you're getting to me conference champions who are just not going to be competitive with other teams, and I don't necessarily care to see that. I, I think in some ways it devalues kind of the other bowls because it's like. Hey man, going ten and two and going like being a ten and two Pac-12 champion who goes to the Rose Bowl is pretty cool. I think that's a that's a really good season. I don't. I think just like let them go to the Rose Bowl. They don't necessarily have to play LSU in the first round or whatever and lose by three touchdowns. Then I just think you know you know letting in two at larges. It's hey man, like if if you if you lost two games, which most of these at larges do. You don't have to play for a national title. It's that's fine. It's like, like in this case, like a, a two at large kind of deal would be putting in, I don't know, like an eleven and two Georgia or a maybe ten and two Penn State or whatever. And it's like, man, they don't gotta be in. They already had their shot, basically. They, yeah, like yeah. you don't you don't need to put them in. Look, if you want to do a full on playoff, okay, fine. Like that's you know, FCS does it and cool. But if not, and I just think and I think there's a way to do four that's fine, but the playoff is just the committee is bad and I mean, and again, I think two's fine. Most of the time, like, we've known, like, yes, sometimes the number four team is one, and we knew who the two best teams were last year, and we knew the two best teams in 2015 and 2016 were as well, so. I kind of hate two, but if you're going to have two, I figure just go back to the old corrupt bowl system and just let people play who they want. That's more fun anyway. <laughs> I, I think two is the worst spot. Just having one championship game is the absolute worst. Yeah, Instead, I mean, I'm fine with single four if you want to let – well, no, I think my thing was I thought, like, I think a, a four with a plus one is fine. Yeah, yeah, that, that's like fine. BC, yeah, plus one. Like the BCS with four as a plus one, I thought that was fine. I think that was uh, – But I, I love the, the, the old-fashioned, you know, I love the old-fashioned bowls. Like, if, yeah, it's, it's funny. Is we've, yeah, we've, we've replaced the fun corruption of bowls with the boring corruption of bureaucracy, and that's the worst. Like, we, we don't need bureaucracy. But, 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 but no, but isn't – my question is then, like, the semifinals aren't fun to you guys? Like the quarterfinals won't be fun. Oh, I, I understand. Yeah, I understand I what Jake them. is saying. Where there, there's definitely going to be years where you're going to get a blowout in a in quarterfinals, maybe two or three of them. I get that 100. percent But man, it's just like that's they're fun, man. They're two yeah, good teams hitting I'm, each other in the mouth. Like that's what I want to watch. So I like you know when a got a team finally gets a shot. I would love if like Utah got into the playoff. And this isn't even because LSU would play them. Like if Utah, I mean little old Utah, who ten years ago was, you know, in, uh, in the Mountain West, got a shot at the national title and was on the biggest stage, rubbing shoulders with blue bloods. That'd be awesome. I mean, even if they lose by three touchdowns, that's still really really cool. So you know, I'm with you even from the standpoint of. I like it from a cool factor of new faces, but I also love big te- teams playing each other. I like Oklahoma playing Alabama. That's Ohio State playing LSU. That's the kind of matchups we dream of. Of course we want those games. Michigan love- State playing Alabama. 
Hey. These are the. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I but no, that's it. Those, I just want to see these games all the time. If Oklahoma and Alabama don't go, you can get Oklahoma and Alabama the Sugar Bowl this year. I yeah, know. I, I get it. And, like, last year, like, Texas-Georgia was a fun game. Two, you know, big-time programs playing in a big bowl. But there's there's a less anxiety. Yeah, because the game matters. There's a little bit more. I agree. There's... I'm not to say that the Sugar Bowl didn't matter at all because it, it did. And I don't like the Georgia excuse of we didn't care because they did. Of course. But they didn't care as much if it was a national semifinal. <laughs> like, like, you're I right. You guys, I, like, maybe I'm in the minority here, but the Fiesta Bowl last year was super fun. It was yeah. a great game. But I wasn't anxious. Like, I agree. If they would have lost the game, I would have been like, okay, whatever, they lost the game. But if that game meant something in terms of a national title, chance that that just would have been would have been better you know it's sort of like when lsu choked away the citrus bowl against notre dame like it was yeah, disappointing but i was over it I, I mean i was over it by dinner time hell i was over it i think five minutes after the game ended i mean who cared and once again i wanted lsu to win i was disappointed they lost but it wasn't you weren't all in so no I, i'm i'm totally with you seth I, you're not alone here I, i'm on that island with you so are you going to talk about Ole Miss? <sighs> no, no, we're not. Um, <laughs> let's just say this. I, I, I posted this on Twitter, so I'll just say it here. Herb Brooks, in the second intermission of the USA-Finland game, after the Miracle on Ice, told his team, who was trailing 2-1 at the time, language, if you lose, language. If you lo- I know, I know. If you lose this game, you will take it to your effing graves. And that's pretty much what the rest of the season is. If LSU loses any of the next three games, these I, players I will take it to their effing graves. You can lose to Georgia because Georgia's a really, really good team. I mean, I prefer they didn't. But losing to either Ole Miss or Arkansas is just completely unacceptable. And losing to A&M, well, oh my God, you cannot do that after last year. Well, I mean, it's weird. Like, they're bad losses. But it's all like LSU could lose and still be Georgia, and they'd be fine. Like, yeah, but I don't want that. it ruins well, I know, what the season. I don't want to lose. Like, I, I, don't, I don't want to lose to Ole Miss or Arkansas, obviously, and especially NF. Like, I don't want to. But it's not like LSU can afford a loss as long as it's they can't afford two; they can afford one. Yeah. No, this is about trying to put post the second perfect season. But no, yes, I agree. Like, I'm going to feed. Yeah, but this is about yeah going on well the third perfect season, nineteen oh eight. So. 1908, 1958, 2019. That's what they're trying to do here. Yeah. And and I also just want to see 350 yards every game from Burrow. Like, let's keep his <laughs> average up there at 350. I, you know, I, this is the things I'm stupidly thinking about because I'm like, you know, maybe this game could get out of hand very early in the next two games, even, even the Texas A&M, A&M game too. And then maybe Burrow doesn't have as many passing attempts and – you know, they just blow him out so early, and then he only has, like, 25 pass attempts, and then he only gets, like, 290 yards. I want him to throw for 400 yards. I want him to break Tim Couch's record. I want him to get into second all-time at LSU. I want him to throw. He really could. He really could, especially if they go all 16 games. He really could break Tommy Hodson's passing touchdown record. I think it's a 69. I think he's, like, 20 away right now. 
you know, if they go another six games, yeah, it's it's, it's very you start, possible. You start thinking about it because if he plays a playoff schedule, I mean, we're talking there are four games, the three games after the regular season, the SEC championship game, probably. I don't want to count any chicken before they hatch. There's four. If you make the playoffs, there's another two. If you advance six games, that's all of a sudden you can put up a lot more numbers than we were thinking. He's only played nine games so far now. And also he's going to play two or three tomato cans. I mean, Burrow has not really had the opportunity to play some bad teams. And that's what Ole Miss and Arkansas are. Yes. I know Ole Miss has a really good pass rush, but the question is if we do go up big in both of those games, how long does he actually play? Does he get the chance to keep that average up if we're blowing them out early? That well, and that's exactly what scares me about it. I mean, scares me. Okay, I'm like I'll live. I'll live if LSU wins by fifty <laughs> and Burrow only throws for two ninety five. But you know, like I, I'd like to see him break all these records. And I yeah, think I too, think they if they get the six they game like schedule, them. that you're going to have it, it'll get tougher the the deeper they go, right? Because they'll if they make it to the SEC championship game, they're playing Georgia. That'll be tougher than any, any of these three teams they're finishing this season with. And then whoever they meet in the playoff is presumably going to be much tougher than Georgia. So, yeah, the time to do any record-breaking is definitely going to be the next three games. Yeah, I mean, that's where you kind of got to get your legs out under you kind of thing. But let's see. If we're talking uh, – this is the crazy thing. I always want to check out. He is – 830 yards behind Wickersham for second place all time in passing yards. So it's not guaranteed, but he should get there, which means he would only be behind Hodson. That's just far too many passing yards to get. So he's going to pass Rohan Davey for the single season record against Ole Miss. There is barring injury. For that one, so really, what's left for him is trying to set um, individual game records. Uh, the, well, this Tim Couch. Yeah, yeah. There, there's Tim Couch. I was looking at the LSU LSU yeah. board, but yeah. So he's and also with his Alabama game getting 393 yards, he now owns five of the top ten games in LSU Incredible. passing history. Uh, the problem is if he sets another one, if he makes the top 10 again, he is in 10th right now. So that doesn't help him. So he needs to, now he needs to start beating his 393 because that's his seventh place. So if he can go ahead of that, he can maybe get six. Um, but yeah, he's God, he's killing it. Um, you look at the, and I, I think everybody knows it and they want him to get it. But at the same time, they're not going to let it get too ridiculous. You don't want to expose him to injury, and you don't want to completely show up or humiliate a rival. Okay, maybe Ole Miss. Yeah, but Arkansas... Right. <laughs> I would say maybe A&M after last year. Yeah. Oh, A&M, we're leaving him into the fourth quarter. I don't care. Uh, I want <laughs> I want blood. I want to win that game. I, I want LSU to score at least 60 points in that game. I'm thinking Point 70. a minute. 70 Point is what I want. Yeah. The other record... Well, I don't know. I, I don't think he'll break any records, but he'll be in the top 10 is uh, Chasen and Jefferson for yards and then Jefferson for catches. Jefferson's already, I think he's 10th right now in most catches in a season. And the guys in front of him are very lumped together. Obviously, he's not going to catch Josh Reed, but, you know, there's a bunch of guys within, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 catches of him. Yeah. And we're talking potentially, definitely 
you know, even just in the regular season, he'll get into the top. I'm not looking at it now, but he could get into the top five, top four, you know, regular season. And then the yards, too, with both of them would be interesting. Yeah, and also you look at the single-season passing yards. Yeah, right now, um, the all-time record, Josh Reed is 1740. But 10th place is Tony Moss at 957. And both that could of them, be this week. Yeah. Both of them could pass that. You still, Yeah, you're right. They're bunched up there. Your first 1,000-yard guy is Eric Martin at 1064. He's in seventh. And second place is Wendell Davis at 1244. Very possible. Very possible. And if you're in Wendell Davis territory, you have done something. Wendell Davis, I mean, he was the SEC player of the year in 1986. He was so great. This is before passing offenses became this. And I think that would be statistically ahead of him, but not in my heart. I think Wendell Davis and Josh Reed will still be the top two. But Jamar Chase. He's a sophomore. He can come back. I don't think he's he's probably not going pro. Not this year. Is he eligible? I don't he's true. He's a true sophomore. So yeah, I so think. I don't think he's eligible. So for him, we're starting to look at three thousand and one yards is the LSU receiving record for a career. He wants to put himself That's, on that list. That is something. I think you'd have to stay for the next Yeah, stay for one more year. Ah, uh, man. you have to you're talking he'd have to go fourteen hundred, fourteen hundred. Yeah, yeah, he would. And then I don't know. He had, probably had about two hundred last year. So, yeah, he 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 still have to add some. So I mean, it's yeah. not it it's not easy, but it's at least it's at least conceivable. Right. Yeah. So yeah, we're not going to talk Ole Miss. That's all we got. So let's <laughs> hit the question bag. <laughs> okay, our own podcast leads us off with now that LSU has beaten Bama. What are you going to do that you've been putting off for the last eight years? <laughs> I don't know. I don't feel like I've really been putting anything off. Like, well, winning Bama, a national title. Yeah, winning a national title. You know, we've won, yeah, yeah, we haven't won since we've lost to them. So, yeah, winning the national title, maybe going to that game. But, like, the Bama game tends to happen on a really busy weekend for me. There's always a, there's a, a concert, right? A block from my house normally, so I normally walk down and watch that. This year it was, uh, um, I want to say Vertical Horizon, but it wasn't. It was Tripping Daisy and uh, um, the old 97s. Ooh, good show. Before it was Stone Temple Pilots previous year, uh, Bare Naked Ladies. So, so, you know, maybe I'll check that out. I went to an ACL one year during the the Bama game. Uh, I mean, I left before the headliner so I could watch the Bama game, but – I don't think I've been putting anything off. So maybe just, you know, drink a little bit more and, you know, do some other unhealthy activities. I mean, I can tell you what I didn't do this year. And it's like, throw something (laughs) at the television. (laughs) (laughs) Usually for me, it's usually, um, it's usually after, especially if I'm like going out that night, you know, like the, the winning streak was during my twenties. Uh, I haven't been out, uh, since I turned 30, I just, I'm a homebody, but the winning streak was basically during my 20s. So I would like generally I would be going out after the game, even if it was a delayed game, you know, the night game. And it would always be like, okay, the game would end, and then I'd obviously be disappointed and pissed off. But it it would take me literally like about to walk out the door, and I'd have to stop in my tracks, look for something to throw, whether it was a pillow, a Kleenex box, a shoe, <laughs> it didn't matter. That's when I would like release into the void. Um, but I didn't have to do that this year, which is nice. 
Well, our friend Chip LGR replied to PK. He said, I think I'm going to finally start a diet. I thought I'd get more time out of my I'll diet with LSU Beats Bama pledge. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, speaking of uh, Chip LGR, he has a two-parter. Number one, did they actually do it? Yes, Chip. They actually did do it. Yeah, they did. did. (laughs) And then uh, the second part, would they be best to try to stunt Chase on more and or use him in a more Deion Jones role as opposed to a one-on-one edge? He's a great overall player, but he just isn't winning one-on-ones in the pass rush. Um, well, I, I think it's tough to take him off the field because he is such a good overall player. Um, but yeah, he just he's just not getting anything done one-on-one. There was a pretty nice play, you know, he got face masked. Um, you know, that could have been a sack. That was that was definitely um, just a straight one-on-one rush. I, I don't know what to do with the pass rush at all. We've been talking about it the whole year. I have I'm out of ideas. He's a good player. He should be on the field. He's not a pass rusher. I think we'll get away with it this year. Yeah, I mean, I think you move him away from being a pass rusher just because. You're right. He's too good to just be pass rushing. So let him play all over the field where he can have more impact. But, I mean, we're talking about a team. The team's leading sack leader is Michael Divinity with three. And obviously you can't make Michael Divinity your rusher anymore. So number two on the team is Damone Clark, two and a half. Do you make Damone Clark now your primary? You could do that. You could put Clark into the Divinity slot, have him rush the passer. And Chase on and Phillips kind of be your primary guys in the. It's just yeah, there's just no pressure. There's there's not a guy, and it's just it doesn't seem like it's Chase on's game. I think also he better served as a pro prospect if he can show he's a more well-rounded linebacker like a Jacob Phillips. Yeah, the problem is they're gonna want him. I mean, I don't know for him to play like a real true stand-up linebacker like he's never done it before you know he plays the the outside yeah the you know like the one we've seen in in the Aranda defense where he can you know sit there he's in a two-point stance but he's really an edge rusher he's really defensive end and he's really good at playing the run and and he and he can drop and cover like those short outside flat zones but you got a pass rush in the NFL and that's what scares him because he looks like such a good kid and he worked his way back from the injury it just he can't. I don't. Th- I don't think he can play at the next level, which is yeah, too bad. He needs another year because it's still. Yeah. It's way too early to write off his career. Like, I, and also he's still a sophomore. I mean, I know he's a redshirt. He's eligible, but Kalevon, if you're listening, stay in school for this one. You need to get better so you can maybe make money in the NFL. So that's exactly it. Yeah, work on your game. We love you, but if it's just about you, you still need to add something to your game to play in the NFL. Paul Heinz wants to know, is it okay to be a little disappointed that Joe Burrow didn't break the single-game passing record against Alabama? He well, did absolutely, have... <laughs> yeah. I mean, Rohan did it. I mean, come on. <laughs> he did have more than 250 yards at halftime. He was on pace for it. What I love about it is those yards mattered. I mean, Burrow threw for almost 400 yards, and every one of them mattered. And that's really cool. But, yeah, it's okay to be a little bit disappointed. But no one went to that game thinking he was actually going to set the record. 
Yeah, that, that that's like that that amount that amount of yards is is ridiculous. Just to think that you can just go into a game and throw for it was it's five twenty eight. Yeah, I think so. Like, um, it is. You, you can't think. Yeah, you can't think. I'm going to go into a game with. I'm going to throw for five hundred twenty eight yards. Yeah, unless you're unless you play for Mike Leach or something like that. But of course, five five hundred twenty eight yards for a Mike Leach quarterback is off eighty nine pass attempts. So it's a little different story. Yeah, and also like five twenty eight has, normally has to be against a good team because you yeah. need the five hundred yards. You normally come out before you can get to that point. Oh, uh, can we talk about before we get to the next question? I thought you know we're talking about pass rushers and chase on. I thought that Austin Deculus, you know, he, he he got a lot of reps against Alabama's best pass rusher, um, twenty four Terrell Lewis. There weren't always pretty. But I thought overall he really held his own, and that really, really mattered going, uh, as the game progressed. That he he was able to just set, you know, just stalemate, and you know the whole line played really well. So I just want to give a shout out to those guys. Yeah, no, I mean, Bama got five sacks. I think about two of them were Burroughs' fault, where he could have gotten rid of the ball. And you're never going to shut down Alabama's pass rush entirely. But yeah, the offensive line did what they needed to do, which was give Burrow enough time to work. And, you know, we're not asking for the best offensive line in football. We we just need to be good enough to give Burrow some time. And considering the pass rushes they have faced, I know Ole Miss gets rated very highly as well. But, I mean, Florida, Auburn, Bama, once they get through Ole Miss, they're going to be pretty happy to see Arkansas and A&M. Arkansas might not feel the defense when they play. God, they might not feel the team. (laughs) Well, speaking of Arkansas, Vinny Bartle says Chad Morris exits Arkansas with zero SEC wins, zero Power Five wins, and losses to Colorado State, North Texas, San Jose State, and Western Kentucky, with two of those being beatdowns. Is this the lowest point in program history, and can anyone turn that dumpster fire around? It is bad. Is it the worst it's ever been? Yeah, it's, it's the worst it's I ever think been. So. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it was so. really bad. when People forget when they first joined the SEC, they were in a pretty low ebb, but they went 3-7-1. and one, So that's bad, but it's not, oh, my God, bad. Yeah, they've never been this. I, I mean, even at their lowest ebb, they've always kind of been – Hey, they're a 500 team. They're middle of the pack. They're not, or, you know, they're below 500 when they're having bad, you know, a downturn. Like their early years in the SEC, they didn't have a winning, 95 had a winning season, but then 98 was their first real winning season. I mean, where they started winning routinely. So from 92 to 97, their first years in the conference, only one really good year, but they, only had that three seven and one year is the really bad one. Other than that, they were like a four and seven, five and six team. So they're always that team that you were a little worried about. Yeah, like, exactly. Like they were never a team you could just be like, oh, it's a win. Yeah. And this team right now is, oh, it's a win for Sun Belt teams. That's uh, I, incredible. What a sentence. <laughs> they're like, we're talking about they're because again, like I, I agree with you. Like and I when I'm coming of age and really starting to understand football is like 2000, 2001 ish. And, you know, like you said, like they weren't 
terrible in those days. So when I started to understand what Arkansas was, they could beat LSU, and they did on the, the what, what they call it, the Markham Miracle, or whatever the hell they call miracle it. Miracle on Markham, because miracle on Markham. LSU actually is a miracle for Arkansas. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there were competitive games and, and all that stuff. And so for me, in my head, Arkansas is like, is a middle-of-the-road SEC team. And for them to be as bad as they are now, it almost doesn't make sense to me. I, I mean, I'll ask you guys, like, what? I, I don't even know how it got that bad before Chad Morris. And I, and I don't even know how it got even worse with Chad Morris. I was a big fan of the Chad Morris hire, but I think there's obviously a lot more than just, yeah, you can scheme up a good, um, a good game plan. He, it's it's bad. There's, you know, is, are they not getting talent from places where they used to get talent? I I, I don't know these things. So I think that's I'm, what I'm it is. Leaving that open ended. Yeah. I think that I think you've got enough big time schools around the state of Arkansas who are going to have they have more cachet than the University of Arkansas does. Let's be honest, and they're able to pull those kids out of out of state. I think it's a big reason why. Arkansas has always recruited Texas, and back in the SWC days, they were a great team. Uh, they slowly had worked it up as they were the team in the SEC that could get Texas kids other than LSU. And I don't mean like five stars that, you know, where Bama just recruits five stars. I mean, they had a pipeline where they could get kids out of Dallas pretty routinely. And I think A&M coming to the SEC has really hurt Arkansas because mm-hmm. now those kids are going to A&M instead of Arkansas. But you would also think Tennessee being down would help Arkansas because they're close to Memphis. Right. But I think the rise of Mississippi State being a much better program over the past five, ten years has hurt Arkansas. Ole Miss routinely being good has hurt Arkansas. And they just haven't been able to sustain it. Uh, Bielma wasn't much of a recruiter, but, I mean, he still had decent teams. The bottom just fell out. And Chad Morris who had a really good reputation in Dallas at SMU. He couldn't draw the kids and couldn't win. And he's out after less than two years. And I'm normally a fan of giving a guy four years, but he's four and 18 and he just lost by what? 30 points to Western Kentucky. Yeah. That's, that's get fired kind of job performance. You got to show at least some incremental improvement year over year. And there was, there was none. Yeah, this was bad. So I feel bad for Arkansas fans. I'm not picking on Arkansas. I think they're a good program. I think this is just a downturn right now. But do I think they're going to bounce back and you know be at you know run DMC levels again? No, I don't. I don't think they're going to get back to that level. But they should get back to five, six wins. You know that mid tier kind of dangerous team. But right now, it just feels so helpless. Does it feel like, and I'm, I'm going to ask a broader question here that relates to teams like Arkansas or even Tennessee or Nebraska. And I know we, we, we talk about this a lot, but the way that, I'm going to sound like an old man, but the way that social media exists and how recruits see college football, if you're not located directly in a kind of uh, hotbed for recruiting, like LSU is in Louisiana. No one knows who you are. Kids don't know who you are. Even if you, you're in Arkansas, like if you're a five-star kid in Arkansas, which 
I'm sure happens, you know, uh, there's a few every year or there's a few four, four star kids. Like I, these brands have become so huge, Alabama and Clemson and now LSU. And it's like, no one wants to go to these places anymore. Like yeah, you just I think, can't get your, you can't even get your hometown good kids anymore. I think what we're starting to see is some stratification that we haven't seen since the seventies where the top programs are truly outpacing, not just the bottom programs or the mid tier programs, but even the pretty good programs by leaps and bounds. And we're starting to get to, you know, Ohio state is just running roughshod over the big 10 by and large. I mean, I'm, I'm talking not just one year, I'm talking 10 year trend, you know, Alabama, okay. LSU and Georgia are kind of keeping pace, but they're running roughshod compared to like a Texas A&M. Who's a really good program. If you think about it, or, you know, Tennessee, of course, or, you know, you look at what Clemson is doing to the ACC. Um, these brands, it just becomes this self-perpetuating thing where only a couple of teams feel they can compete for playoff bids. So all of the five-star talent just goes to five to ten schools. And so that middle tier of good programs are just getting gutted and they can't compete with the top tier like they could in the 80s, 90s, and aughts, which was a real era of parody, which I think is coming to a close. Yeah, and that's why these wins this season for LSU is so important, and getting Orgeron is so important because you don't want to miss the boat right now. Yeah, no, they, this is... they were they were close to to missing the boat at, by the end of the Les Miles era. Yeah, this is I really think a, and honestly, I think this era kind of changed around like two, with the playoffs, so right around 2015 or so. This is a new era of college football, and we are going back to. You know, to use the old Big Ten expression, you know, the big two and the little eight. Mm. See, that was that was a, a liver spot one right there. That <laughs> was an old, that was an old person reference. <laughs> Justin Evans wants to know: Has anyone else seen a college team use the pass to set up the fun like LSU? Well, yeah. I mean, we're not the first team to run a fun offense. No. I, I mean. We're all playing catch up to, you know, Houston in the 80s <laughs> or BYU. I mean, geez, those teams were a blast. Uh, Florida, fun and gun. I was called the fun and gun. Right. It's <laughs> in the name. It's in you the name. Even Alabama last year. Yeah. Like, you know, on early downs, they were throwing the ball like 65% of the time or something like that, like, oh. which is wild. Yeah. For Especially for a team like that. Like, so I think it's. We're just coming around to it, and it's nice that we have the five stars that that, that uh, work in this scenario. But what's funny is you think about it, we're catching on to it right as it's, I don't want to say dying, but it's just drifting to the top schools, and that's it. It mm. used to be a way for lesser, I hate to use the term lesser, but I'm just going to go with it, lesser schools to compete with more talented schools. So, you know, it was the Texas Tech method, right. you know. You know they would throw the ball all over the field, or since we're using the '80s, Houston and BYU. But now the Blue Bloods are using it, and the Big Twelve, which used to be famous for guys throwing it all around, those Big Twelve offenses are gone. You look around the Big Twelve this year; no one's chucking it around except for Oklahoma, maybe Texas. Yeah, and the funny thing about the Oklahoma stuff, 
over the past few years is like they're running with full I mean you know you can call them whatever position you want but they're really running oftentimes with a fullback and a tight end on the field so it's not even as spread out they're throwing it a lot and there's really good players and really good schemes but you know LSU is playing they never have a fullback on the field they have one tight end who is a hell of a pass catcher so it's it's as spread as you can get yeah, it's different. It's very different. And then, like you said, it's like Alabama. It's like Clemson. You, you don't have a choice now. You just don't have yeah. a choice now. Because the problem with coming up with a scheme when you have less talent to try and beat someone one scheme, it works for a few years. But what happens is the teams with talent start to adopt it. And so they can run it better than you because they have you know more talented talent. players. And so now we're in that era where those teams are now trying to come up with a way to stop it. I think they will eventually, but we just, we're not there yet. We're in that transition where the idea has now gone from, you know, it, it's gone from division three high school to division three, all the way up to mid tier D one. Now it's gotten to the blue bloods. And so now everybody else is trying to come up with a way to beat it. So, but they can't keep up. So they're no longer running, you know, the crazy offense. It's just funny to yeah, watch. This is, this is a while before we're going to see anyone. Like, we might see these type of LSU-Alabama scores for a few years. But it'll be weird to see how we play against other teams. We, we might start to only see it against other Blue Blood programs. Right, yeah. Like, you'll only see this kind of game against an Oklahoma, a Texas, you know, an Alabama. But we'll run... I mean, not a totally different offense, but we'll run a scaled back version against Mississippi State. Mm. Well, and and we we won't have. We're just talking LSU. I I don't really want to think about this right now, but we won't have the quarterback either. No, no, we we won't. Hey, Miles Brennan, he's going to win six Heisman. <laughs> <laughs> Justin had a second question. He wanted to know what is everyone's first watch on Disney Plus. I actually watched old Disney shorts. I love old animation. So I love hand-drawn stuff. So I actually watched Steamboat Willie. That's a good call. My, was my literal first watch. And then I watched a lot of um, Silly Symphonies. I would just watch whatever random Mickey Mouse cartoons I could. Yeah, I, I, don't, ha- I don't have it. I don't know if I'm going to get it. But if I was to get it, I think I would do the same thing and kind of reminisce a bit with the old cartoons. And for the record, this is not reminiscing. That stuff came out in the 30s. I'm not not that old. (laughs) For me, it was The Mandalorian. That was the first first thing I watched. So I watched that last night. I still watched it. Let's be honest. Uh, Not not surprised. I stayed on brand, personal brand. So yeah, no, no, I I respect that. (laughs) Yeah, after about an hour of watching shorts, I'm like, okay, let's watch Mandalorian. All right, Richard Pittman, I like beignets, wants to know, civilization is about to collapse, and you can preserve only one of the following. Pre-Frank Miller Batman comics. Looney and he knows me. <laughs> <laughs> Looney Tunes shorts. Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons. Or Kurosawa films. Ooh. Which do you save and why? All right, this is clearly a question for me, unless Seth wants to take. You know, uh, Seth wants please. to take it. Go All ahead. Right. Um, f- 
first off, I do like that he excludes all Batman, uh, Frank Miller and on, because that's Dark Knight Returns, and he knows how much I hate Frank Miller. So thank you for that, Richard. Though, I still wouldn't keep the Batman, even though Batman's great. I would also, and this hurts me deeply because I do love the show, I would get rid of Rocky and Bowinkle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little, it, it's it's too time specific. If I'm tr- keeping one yeah. thing, yeah. It, it, it's, it's too narrowly focused. It, it's too Cold War. So that leaves us with two options. Um, the One of the greatest filmmakers of all time, or Bugs Bunny. And Kurosawa was really tempting because if you keep his films, you essentially keep the Western yeah. as well. Remember, Star Wars is based off of Throne of Blood. Yep. Uh, and also, you know, Seven Samurai is based off, you know, it becomes The Magnificent Seven. Uh, it, Rashomon is one of the great films ever made. It's one of my favorites. That talks about the perspective and how people's perspective changes stories. And that's a, sto- that's a thing now. The Rashomon is just something we just talk about and how we understand that stories and who's telling the story affects the story. Yeah. All of that said, I go with Bugs Bunny. First off, I just said I love old animation, so there's that. They're really, really funny. But not only that, not only is Bugs Bunny a great character and so is Porky Pig, but I think what's really important about Looney Tunes is that it incorporates so much else. We learned so much high culture. Yes. And the classic canon without realizing it. Yep. Because it was all smuggled in through cartoons. And I think that's just really, really neat. And something that I think we've kind of taken for granted. Because I think since Bugs Bunny cartoons don't really get played that much. Yeah. People, younger people don't know kind of the cultural canon anymore because they aren't exposed to it when they're eight years old watching Porky Pig. And they're really funny. They're great. But you also sneakily learn something. And that's kind of cool. And so I also, the voices and the Roadrunner and Coyote is just a wonderful metaphor. And if you root for the Roadrunner, (laughs) you're godless, soulless (laughs) bastard. And you should reconsider everything about your life. You're wrong. You should not be rooting for the Roadrunner. Stop it. You're a bad person. <laughs> you have to wonder if anyone under the age of 30 gets killed the wabbit, killed the wabbit. <laughs> right. yeah, you know, that's the, you know, you know, that's opera. Like, you know, we're yeah. learning. It's just, you know, the barbarous of ill. And we didn't, re- and also all the music in the background is cl- I mean, I know Beethoven's Ninth because of it. I didn't right. know I knew Beethoven's Ninth, but I do because of Bugs Bunny. So, and also he'll teach you about the war. You know, they have World War II stuff, and yeah, they can do all kind of cool stuff. So, yeah, that's where I arrived too. I I discarded Rocky and Bullwinkle first, and and reluctantly did so with the, with Batman. But I pretty much arrived at the same point you did for the same reasons you did. I think that's because we both kind of grew up with, you know, Saturday morning cartoons and Looney Tunes was a huge part of that. Yeah. And it's also because we're missing it now. And I really feel their absence. Hmm. Like Bugs Bunny still exists, but I, I feel that he's slipping out of the cultural consciousness. And that makes me really, really sad because the Looney Tunes are great. All right. So Brad Falk says he likes beignets too. 
But his question is, seeing Marcus Spears so happy all over ESPN reminds me how Saban said he was his most important recruit. Donardo said the same for Kevin Falk. O says that about Burrow. Who are the five most important recruits in LSU history? Players that changed coaches' lives. Oof. That's a good one. God, that's hard to do. Spears is a great answer. Also, because he, he helped open up New... Was he from New Orleans? Because I know he was like trying to help... Oh. Seems like he was, yeah. He was one of the guys who helped open up uh, New Orleans. And that was huge for LSU because LSU went years as a no-go zone in New Orleans. Uh, Kevin Falk, without a doubt, I, I think he's number one, to be honest. Kevin Falk is the most important recruit in LSU history. We, he is the guy who reversed the dark ages. And you need that first step to get out of it. He gave LSU hope. Burrow, God, Burrow is a really good – if he can deliver a national championship, I'd put him on the list because LSU has struggled to find a quarterback for so long. But and I don't even like even if we 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 just look at today and not think about you know the next couple months, you know the, the the type of recruits that they're getting this year because of what Burrow has done just in the nine games. Sorry, eight nine games. Nine, yeah. Like that might be enough that he you know again like he could hit that floor where it's like six hundred yards and and two and three interceptions in three games or whatever that I was talking about before. And it still might be enough to really change LSU and put them in that elite Power Five grouping that we were talking about a couple of minutes ago. Yeah, because so that's we, why I think he's that important. Yeah, and also we've been looking for a quarterback essentially for forty years. Yeah, you know we've been trying to replace Burt Jones since nineteen seventy two, and there's been a couple of guys who have made us feel hey they're almost as good as Burt Jones. But not really. That is how long LSU has gone without a truly elite quarterback. Unless you want to count your Marcus Russell, which uh, I would as well. It, it has been a long time. But even Jamarcus felt like a blip. Yeah, I think he was, yeah. The, the quarterback play has been so bad at LSU. If people make it sound like it's a Les Miles problem. It's not. It goes back, again, to Burt Jones. That is 40... 50 years of searching for a guy who can be the LSU quarterback and Burrow has kind of changed that dynamic. And you kind of feel like the next guys coming in are going to be able to pick up the mantle. They're not going to be as great, but they're still going to be able to do it. And I think that's important. Yeah, I think so too. It's, it's a good question. I looked up Spears. Spears is from, uh, is actually from Baton Rouge. Okay. So um, was it Marquise Hill was from uh, New Orleans? That's very possible. Marquise Hill, I think was the one who really, Opened up New Orleans. I think Patrick Peterson was a huge yeah. recruit because yeah, he was talking in the less. Mi- I was trying to think of the less miles recruit in this because in this category. He yeah. really opened up. He made LSU a national brand. I think before that it was always you know lock down Louisiana and we'll compete with Louisiana kids. And there's still an element to that, and I still believe in it. But Patrick Peterson was one of the first recruits we got who was like, this guy could go anywhere in the country and he's coming to LSU. And I think that changed how people perceived LSU nationally. Historically, Doc Fenton, (laughs) and this is the 1900s, but he is the first great LSU football player. He won as a national title in 1908. 
but he also was part of a recruiting war. He was going to go to Mississippi State, and then we told him that they had blue laws, and he came to LSU and won a national championship. And he's the first person to ignite the idea of LSU football and getting huge crowds. So I know it sounds silly, but he's a really important recruit because if he doesn't come to LSU, does Mississippi State become the power? And LSU is kind of like a mid-tier program. I would I would rather we did not go down this alternate universe where I mean, Mississippi it's, State is winning <laughs> titles. It's not impossible is kind of my point. And kind of the beginning of LSU football is Doc Fenton coming here. So I think he's a really important recruiter. If we're talking the most important of all time, he's at least in the conversation. You also look at it, the uh, – I, I, we had talked about it. I've written about the LSU uh, – Steve Van – not Steve Van Buren and Y.A. Tittle, but they – they had a recruiting class in which everybody went to the pros and that's just the entire backfield went to the pros and that's ridiculous, but none of the one recruit was that important. I think the other early day recruit that's really, really important, not Billy Cannon, but Jim Taylor, because Jim Taylor came before those guys and he carried LSU football on his back for a season and the team went 500 and if Jim Taylor's not there, Dietzel gets fired, and we don't win the 1958 national championship. And again, LSU football maybe doesn't become what it becomes, and it just stays as like a five and five program, which it, it's kind of sunk to in the mid 50s. So I think Jim Taylor is one of those pivotal recruits where you can say, "Here's before, and here is after." So if we're looking at old time guys, those two. Our crew, and also, they were guys that we almost didn't get. Even though Taylor's from Baton Rouge, he couldn't hack it academically. He went JUCO and had to come back. So we had to recruit him twice. So I think those historically are two of the most important old guys. And YA Tittle, just because he's fun. I, I would say when we talk about who's the greatest of all time, people tend to mean that what's happened in the last 20 years. And they don't mean all time. Right. So they think of the time that they can remember. Yeah, they can think of the time they remember. But I think if we're actually saying all time LSU in no order, the top five recruits, I think Doc Fenton, because he's the guy who put LSU on the map, he's the foundational player. Jim Taylor, because he's the guy who eventually would lead to the 58 national championship, even though he wasn't on that team. He's the guy who kept Dietzel here. I would say Kevin Falk, because he got LSU out of the dark ages. Patrick Peterson, because he made LSU a national brand. And I would say then Joe Burrow, because he changed the perception of LSU as a place where you couldn't run an offense and you couldn't get a quarterback. So I think those are the five most impactful recruits in LSU history. The only thing I'll say is like going back to the Marcus Spears one is because it's tough because I don't, I don't know if Marcus Spears and maybe it's because it's been 20 years, but Marcus he was Spears big. Was a, he was a great player and he was big, but I, it almost feels like the best recruit in that time was convincing. Well, not convincing, but like, you know, hiring Nick Saban to come here. And that changes it more than almost any of the re- individual recruits in that time. Yeah. Get Does that make coach. sense? Yeah. No, sometimes the job you do bring in a coach matters more like Dietzel, you know, coming here to win as a national title in 58. I mean, that changed what LSU was because before, they were kind of piddling around with guys who couldn't really win. So, yeah, sometimes recruiting is not just the players. It's the coaches. 
and I hate to say it, but Saban was an important figure in LSU history. I mean, it might be, again, it's, we're talking more recency bias here, but like, it's tough, it's tough to name five more important guys than Nick Saban to LSU history. In my opinion, I don't know. You know more about this stuff than I do. That is a, that's another, and that is another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. Yeah.